about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this summer we have been looking at really all, a lot of the different topics that Proverbs hits on, and there's many of them. There's many of them that we didn't get to, and maybe we'll come back and revisit Proverbs at some point. Um, you all look much more wise. I, I just wanted to point that out. Um, but we've talked about, you know, Proverbs, we can read through it, and it feels different than the rest of the Bible, um, that this is wisdom literature. And it's written in a different way, and it has just sometimes just one statement after the other. And you might read through Proverbs, and you might start to think, oh, this is sort of life's little instruction book. If I just follow these things, everything will go well for me. It's not exactly what Proverbs is. We've said over and over that this is a gospel book. And sometimes it's a gospel book in the sense that it shows us really where we're wrong. It shows us where we've been foolish. It shows us where we're not wise And then it leads us to the path where we can find wisdom. And what we know, because we have the whole Bible, is that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And so hopefully every week that what we've seen in these passages and what we've seen as we've looked at these various topics is that at the end that what we've seen most beautiful is Jesus. And I hope that's true again um, today. This is the last sermon that we'll have on Proverbs. The next three weeks we're going to take a little break and I'm going to preach on Um, our mission. What is the mission of this church? And so we're going to take three Sundays to think through the mission of the church, and then we'll pick back up um, this fall, and we'll finish up uh, John that we started last year. So just a little um, preview of where we're headed. Let me, let me pray for us before we, before we jump in. Father, what we probably have seen, I know that what I've seen as I've looked at your word, is there are many ways in which I've been foolish, in which I am not wise, and that there is a path oftentimes that I think is right, and yet it doesn't lead to good places. And so, Father, we come to you once again, and we need you to speak to us. We, we need to know what it means for us to live in your way, in your world. And we acknowledge um, from the start that you are the one who created all things, that you made us for your glory. Uh, that we have wandered off again and again, and that you have pursued us in love, and that you have brought us into your family. And so, Father, I pray that we would not despise your instruction, but I pray that we would listen to you, because we know your love. We've seen it on display, 
especially in your son Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. So open our ears this morning so that we might hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been thinking in the last couple weeks a lot about Joseph. Joseph uh, from the Old Testament. You may know the story about Joseph. The reason that I, I've been thinking about him a lot is I was reading one morning in, in one of the Psalms, Psalm 105. And if you've read through the Psalms before, you might have favorites and you go back to those again and again. Psalm 105, I sort of had forgotten about. I didn't really remember much about it. And I'm reading back through this Psalm. And it's one of those, and a lot of them do this, because these are, these are songs. They're meant to be sung back to God. And, they, and the beauty of that is they help the Israelites and they help us remember who God is. Because we want to form God in our own image. We want to think God is a particular way. And so God gives us songs to sing that say, no, this is who I am. This is how I've revealed myself to be. And this is one of those psalms that um, recounts God's wondrous works. In fact, I think the title in my Bible above this psalm was... Um, the wondrous works of God. And as it's going through, you know, it's Israel, the Israelites renaming a lot of their history and recounting the wonderful things that God had done for them. He brought them out of slavery. He did all of these things. And then I got to this one verse, and I'm kind of reading along, and okay, yeah, I remember that. And it said this, one of the wondrous works of God is when, he, when God summoned a famine on the land. And he broke all supply of bread. He has sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. That's kind of a bummer. We're recounting all the wonderful works of the Lord, and it gets to this point, and it says, here's one of the wonderful works of the Lord, when he sent a famine upon the land, and he stopped the supply of bread. And then he took this one man, he sent one ahead of them, and you kind of think, uh, how is God going to handle this? And he puts this one in slavery and puts him in chains binds his feet, puts a collar of iron around his neck. And so the Israelites are singing this psalm um, with the perspective of hindsight, that they're looking back and they know the end of the story and they're seeing the fact that God is wondrous in what he did. But when I'm reading this psalm, I can't help but think about Joseph. How did he feel? How did he feel when all of his brothers turned against him? When he was thrown into a pit? When he was left for dead, when people came along and bought him and, and put him into slavery, when he was falsely accused, when, I mean, you think in all of those times, I'm sure that Joseph spent nights in prison where he looked up into the sky and he thought, are you still there? Do you have any idea what you're doing? What is the plan? But at the end of, the, of, his, of his life, If you've read the story, if you know the story, we know that Joseph is reunited with those same brothers whose wicked plan had sold him into slavery and had wrought so much destruction and so much hurt and so much, let's just use the word trauma. I mean, how much trauma did Joseph go through? And yet Joseph turns to them and he forgives them. 
And I think that was what was weighing on me as I think about this story um, is that, you know, if one little thing goes wrong in my day, like stub my toe, you know, somebody says something that discourages me, it's sort of like I can have moments where, like, all bets are off, right? You know, God has abandoned me. Um, everything's headed toward, like, hurtling towards destruction. And here's Joseph. And at the, at the end of this horrible story, he comes back and he forgives his brothers. And you go, where's, where's the bitterness? Where's the hatred? Where's the retaliation? And the answer is found in this one little loaded sentence that he gives as he's talking to his brothers. And you know this line probably. He says, as for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. You did evil. The things you did were actually evil. But God was doing something else even in the midst of your evil, that God was actually working good, that God was actually doing something that was good. And you see what the the little secret here of Joseph is that Joseph wasn't some, you know, miraculous person that is really probably that much different than anyone else in this room. The difference in Joseph is that he he kept trusting in the providence of God. That he knew something about the character of God. That he knew something about the nature of God. That he knew that God was actually good. That God actually loved him. That God was actually powerful and he was sovereign over all things. And and Joseph put his hands, he put his life into God's hands. He trusted God. Even when things looked horribly bleak. You know, if I don't know... um, I'm not assuming everyone in you here is a Christian this morning. For those of you who have maybe been Christians for a long time, in a way, this is one of the most elementary points of our faith. It's to simply trust God. To trust the, maybe one of the most elementary points of our faith is, is just the acknowledgement. And we've said it, I think, already this morning, that God is God and I am not. That's an astounding statement. That God is sovereign, that he is good, that he is in control, and I'm not. And I trust him. It's one of the most elementary things, and yet it is one of the hardest things. I think to a person, if we went around this morning and, and we asked, if we really delve into our life and we think, what is one of the hardest things about living a life of a Christian? In one way or another, it would probably come back to just... It's really just hard for me to trust God with my life. I want to control my life. I know that I I know what I want my life to look like. And oftentimes I even am guilty of wanting to manipulate God. Maybe if I'm good in certain ways, maybe if I honor him in certain ways, then the payoff will be that he'll make my life look the way that I want it to look. And yet God is never manipulated by us. And so this morning, as we think about this last, this kind of last topic of wisdom, wisdom in tomorrow or wisdom in the future, I want to look at, I want to look at three things this morning. I want to look at the paradox that exists in the Bible between our plans and God's providence. I want to talk a little bit about how Proverbs instructs us to think about tomorrow, the wisdom that comes with thinking through facing tomorrow. And then the freedom of, in knowing that God is actually in control. 
Let's think about the paradox that exists in the Bible between God's plans, our plans, and God's providence. Because if you read through the Proverbs, if you were just listening through these, these Proverbs that Annie read to us this morning, there's a sense in which if you're really paying attention and if you read through the rest of the Bible, there's something that is really frustrating to us. It's okay that it's frustrating. It's okay to admit um, that you're frustrated by it. It's the fact that there's two things that are held up in front of us, and both of them are absolutely true. The first one is that you, your choices that you make, they actually matter, and they actually have consequences to them. So that the Bible tells us um, things about how we make decisions and how we plan for the future because they actually have importance, yet you actually have choices. And at the same time, it says that God is in control of all things and sovereign over all things. And if you think about those two things for a little bit, you realize this is, this is a paradox, right? I mean, technically speaking, this is a paradox. It's two truths that seemingly contradict one another and yet on their own are both true. And yet in our minds, when we think about them for too long, our head just kind of wants to explode. That God's sovereignty and our responsibility are both overwhelmingly confirmed by Scripture again and again. And since it makes our heads hurt, I think that we want to get away from it sometimes. And often, we may not say this out loud. We may not even like consciously think it. But when we look at our lives, we fall into maybe one of two extremes. That we kind of fall into the extreme of just determinism or complete autonomy. And if we fall into the extreme of determinism, basically what we're saying is that, well, yeah, God is in control of everything. Everything is fixed. My choices um, don't really matter. What's going to happen is going to happen. But then we go back and we think about that story with Joseph. We realize that the Bible clearly doesn't teach us this because Joseph's brothers were still responsible for the evil that they committed against their brother. So much so when they come back to him, they beg him for forgiveness. And the Proverbs tell us that there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it actually leads to death. And I think that that tends to imply that there are choices that we make that have severe consequences, not only in our own lives, but in the world around us. I can't help but think about in the last couple weeks, I mean, just as an illustration, that the choice of the, the white church during the civil rights era, out of fear to remain silent, probably uh, from being accused of things or maybe losing power or losing control, that the consequences of that, um, if we've had our head in the sand and we haven't realized there are consequences of that, we've seen them spring to life in the last couple weeks. That our choices actually do matter that they actually have weight, that they actually have consequences. But the other extreme is just sort of complete autonomy. And theologically, this would be called open theism, that God doesn't really know what's going to happen next either. And so, basically, your life is sort of up to you. Make it a good one, right? God's curious to see what's going to happen, and he's standing back. And he's just watching. And We know that scripture doesn't teach that either because you heard it already. That it clearly says that 
Joseph says to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God actually intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God is not passive. God is good, and he's providential. And he's even using what we may hate, and he's even using what may very well be evil to do something that he's working good. I used the, an illustration a few weeks ago um, about Johnny Erickson Tata, who has been a quadriplegic most of her life. And I read a quote this week from her where she said, from her wheelchair, that sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. That's hard for us. But when somebody in her state says it, my ears perk up. God's providence is perfect. It's exhaustive. But most of it, and this is what's frustrating to us, is not revealed to us. It's secret, right? Um, We don't know what's going to happen next. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children. The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us. We don't know the intricacies of what God is doing, and we don't know the intricacies of his plan, but we do know that he tells us, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, your strength, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's been revealed to us. And so Joseph didn't know in chapter 37 what he ended up knowing in chapter 50, right? He didn't know that. We look back and we're like, what a beautiful story. But you think about in the midst of it, it was horribly tragic and traumatic for this man. The secret things belong to God and we often, we we maybe often never know why things happen the way that they happen. It's just the truth, right? We often, we, that, that if God's providence is exhaustive and it's perfect, then the things that happen in this life, he may have two million reasons for why one particular thing happened, and we might know one of them in our lifetime. There's a chance we may not know any of them. Joseph's job... The reason we still read about him is because his job wasn't to figure all of that out. His job was actually, and this is something we don't want to hear, his job was to trust and remain faithful. His job was to put his life into the hands of God, even in the midst of trial. All right, if you're frustrated with that, well, then you think about, well, then how do I, what do I do? I mean, if my choices do matter and yet God is sovereign and he's in control, then like, What wisdom is there in the Proverbs for me to make plans when I'm thinking about what to do next with living in a world that's unknown to us? You know, Proverbs 27 says, we don't know what a day might bring. We don't know what the next hour might bring. We don't know what this afternoon might bring. And so how do I make decisions? How do I move forward? How do I face tomorrow with wisdom? I want to give you five words that come out of these Proverbs. And we'll talk about each of them just for a second. The five words are this. I'll go back and say them again um, for those note takers in the room. But trust, humility, direction, counsel, and integrity. 
How do we face tomorrow with wisdom? Trust, humility, direction, counsel, and integrity. And the first one is we've talked about a lot already, but let's, let's park there again for a minute, is that we trust. That we trust that, that this is what we're called to, is that we trust that his providence is actually good even when we don't understand it, because most of the time we don't. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. 16.4 says, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Go home and wrestle with that, right? But he's made everything for its purpose. And, you know, this morning some of you um, are here and you have had, and I don't in any way want to make light of the, the things that you've suffered. Because some of you are suffering now, some of you are grieving now, some of you have experienced um, horrible loss in your life, some of you have experienced trauma. But I do want to point out that you're here this morning. And you're worshiping this morning. And that even though you might feel at times as if God has abandoned you or he's left you, I think that you sitting here is evidence enough for me to to confirm to you that he hasn't. And that he's still at work. It's not easy for us to trust. I I, I can't, you know, in the last couple weeks, I I have not, in really the last few years, I've tried to fathom, and I can't, what it must be like to be an African-American in our country. Let me just say it, right? And to be an African-American in the church this morning who are worshiping all around us in this city and are going to praise God, and yet in our country have experienced bondage and slavery and lynching and beatings, and to this day the news is dominated with people spewing hatred and bigotry and white supremacy. How long, O oh Lord, is what I would be saying. How long? And yet their faithfulness and their trust in the black church, even when the white church has not spoken up against these things, but has actually participated in them, we need to sit at their feet and learn. That is what trust looks like. That is what it looks like to trust God, even in the midst of what is horrible and hard to understand. Trust and humility. Humility, don't boast about tomorrow for you don't know what a day may bring. And here's the thing is what the Proverbs is saying to you is that it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. And it doesn't matter how good your job is, how stable your family is, how much you've accomplished, how many degrees you have, how many little letters you have after your name, it was all a gift to you. It was all a gift to you. What Proverbs is urging you really to do is is to ask the question, what am I doing with that gift? And if what I'm doing with that gift is I'm simply boasting in it so that I'm thinking by this I'm going to secure my future, it's actually saying you are being foolish. It's like the man in the the parable that Jesus talks about as he builds up his barns and he fills them and he sits back and he's saying, "Um, I'm going to eat and drink and be merry because I've saved up for the future and I've got this. You know what Jesus calls him? He says he is a fool. He's a fool. A lot of us are fools in that regard because we think that we can control tomorrow by our money, 
by our education, by our jobs, by our influence. We think that we can control it. And the Proverbs say to, for you to face tomorrow takes, in a, in a godly way, takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of humility. Because it's saying every day when I wake up, I don't know what this day is going to bring, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that, that behind this hand of providence is a heart that I know and I've seen and I've understood because it is the heart of Jesus. And so I'm going to trust you. So trust and humility and direction. What do I mean by direction? Listen to these Proverbs again. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. How do we face tomorrow? Now, normally, we face tomorrow by frantically making our own plans really for our own benefit because we're fretting over them, because we want tomorrow to work a certain way, because if it works a certain way, it'll simply be better for us. And instead, the Proverbs say, commit your work to the Lord. Give it to him and and do it for him and do it for his glory. What work is he talking about? Anything that you put your hand to. Because by him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And so it's saying whatever you put your hand to, commit it to the Lord. He will establish you. You see a rhythm and a theme in what wisdom looks like? Fourthly, counsel. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Do you have people in your life who are more experienced than you are, who are more wise than you are, who understand you, they understand your idols, they understand your weaknesses, And you go to them and you ask them for advice. Hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? If every decision that we make is simply our own doing, if we're never seeking counsel, basically scripture is just saying that's just not wise. That you need, that you've been put in a family. um, That you put in this larger family, the church, and Part of the reason that you need community and part of the reason that you need other believers in your life is you need them to know you. You need to be known so that they can speak wisdom in your life because sometimes we do really stupid things. And we need somebody else to tell us, hey, that's not going to go well. Counsel. And then fifthly, integrity. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. And here's the thing, if you walk, we could talk about this for a while, and I can't, but if you walk with integrity, it's basically, it doesn't guarantee that your life is going to be easy. It doesn't guarantee that things are going to go well for you. I, in fact, often if we look back at scripture, we look at the disciples, um, I don't know, we could take almost any character in the Bible, those who ended up walking with integrity because they were convinced of the love of God for them, usually their lives did not look the way that they probably had thought they would look when they were about 10 years old. But it says to walk with integrity because that is what you need to guide you. And to walk with integrity is to keep your eyes fixed on the one who is sovereign over all things. 
the one who out of his mercy has set his love upon you and me, even though we are the last people who deserve it. To walk with integrity means to go, I, I, I am so enamored by this one who is for some reason enamored with me that I don't have to secure everything in my life so that I will be the most comfortable person, so that everything will go the way that I want it to. But I'm actually free to actually give myself away. You see, lastly, there's freedom in knowing that God is in control. There's, there's freedom in it. Because we, um, you know, we look at the world and, we, and there's a lot of stuff to be afraid of, all right? I don't know what your biggest fears are. I know what some of your biggest fears are because we talk about them. But there's a lot of things when we look in this world and we think about what can happen in our life. There's some stuff that's scary. But as I quoted a few weeks ago, the author Marilyn Robinson, she said that fear is not a Christian habit of mine. And I think that that's true. The fear is not a Christian habit of mine. And if fear is the thing that is steering and guiding our life, then we'll always be grappling after control. But the thing that you already know is that you can't control your own life. You can't do it. And it only leads to more anxiety. And it's the reason that we read from the New Testament earlier that Jesus looks into the hearts of his people and he tells them, you know what, don't be anxious about tomorrow. And they're like, yeah, right. But he gives them a different directive because what he says is, I'm going to provide for you exactly what you need. It may not be what you like, but I'm going to provide for you exactly what you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. I was thinking about this this week. And I began to, I began to, to think about and, and meditate upon Hebrews chapter 11. And I realized I hadn't been there in a while. I haven't looked at that passage in a while. And I hadn't meditated it, on it in a while. And it's the famous chapter in the Bible that you might remember. It begins with the words, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. And then the author of Hebrews goes and begins to recount all of these people for whom that definition fit. And here's the thing. We don't worship those people. We worship Jesus. But what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's setting up for us an example. And he's saying, this is what it looked like to walk by faith. This is what it looked like. That, you know, Abraham left because he was called, but he didn't know where he was going. He didn't even know. This is what it looks like. He talks about the fact that some of them were sawn in two. That's not in my plan, right? <laughs> but the reason that they're praised is not necessarily because they're any different than you and me. They're flawed men and women. But the author celebrates them because it says this, They desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not, this is such a beautiful line, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city for them. You see, we know the end of the story. We don't know every step that we're going to take in order to get to the end of the story. 
But we do know the end of the story. And just like these in, in, in Hebrews 11, they looked forward to a, a better city, a distant city, one that they were journeying towards. In many ways, it's no different for us. That there's a new heaven and a new earth that awaits. That there's a heavenly city. And just like Joseph went before the people into the famine, that Jesus has gone before us. And he's gone, he says, to prepare a place for us. And we don't know every step that God is going to make us take because of his plan is different than ours, and he is doing something that we cannot possibly comprehend or imagine. But somehow, in taking the steps to that city, that he is doing things in this world to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. And so we wait patiently, we remain bold, and we pray thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We speak out against things that we know are wrong. We fight for those who maybe's voices are being muffled. We walk with integrity because we know what day is actually coming. And there's freedom in that. A few years ago, I was watching, my wife and I began watching the, the series, the TV series 24. Anybody watch 24? As we watch through 24, you know, every single episode's a cliffhanger. Every single one means that you're going to watch another one and you're going to stay up too late and then you're going to be angry the next day because you, you have a 24 hangover. And we kept doing this until finally she went out of town one weekend and I was faced with this dilemma as a husband. Do I keep watching without her? And I chose poorly. I didn't choose wisely. I kept watching without her until I finished it. She came back, was mad, but she started watching it on her own, and every once in a while, I would come and drop in on an episode and sit with her. And she's on pins and needles, and she's wanting to watch the next one, but I'm as cool and calm as a cucumber, right? I know exactly what's going to happen to Jack Bauer, and he's usually going to come out on top, right? I knew what was going to happen next. We know the end. We know where we're going. And I'll leave you with this quote that I put back on the front. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to it. It's from a really old Christian named John Flavel. He said, Oh, how ravishing and delectable a sight will it be to behold at one view the whole design of providence and the proper place and use of every single act, which we could not understand in this world, all the dark, intricate, puzzling providences at which we were sometimes so offended and sometimes amazed which we so unjustly censured and bitterly bewailed, as if they had fallen out quite against our happiness, we shall then see see to be to us as the difficult passage through the wilderness was to Israel, the right way to the city of habitation. Friends, God is on his throne. God is on his throne, and thankfully you and I are not. He is a God who brings good out of evil, He is a God who came down and entered into the chaos of this world and subjected himself to suffering and every type of trial and temptation. He he is the God who is the author, the perfecter, and the finisher of your faith. And you can trust him because he is good. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, I don't pretend for a second to believe that this is easy for any of us to trust Father, we're um, grappling after control. We want something that we feel like we can tangibly put our hands around. 
so that we can make sure that everything goes well for us. But Father, I thank you that Jesus at every moment, he trusted you. I thank you that at every moment, um, he said, your will be done to you. And Father, I thank you that at the end of his life, that Jesus took the cup, the cup of bitterness, and he drank it down to the very end. I thank you that he did that for us, Father. I pray that as we come to this table this morning that we would commune with him, that our hearts would be lifted up and that they would be stirred and that they would, we would be encouraged and we would be emboldened to know that he has not left us, that he is with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.